Welcome back to the Core EM Podcast. Core content for anyone, anywhere, and just in time. This is the official podcast of the NYU Bellevue EM Residency Program. I'm Anand Swami Nathan. And I'm Jenny Beck Esme. So Jenny, what are we going to cover today for core content? I thought we'd drop into herpes, and I know that we did STDs recently. So today, let's focus on the non-genital herpetic infections. Excellent topic. You know, I think that we see these so frequently, and it's good to have a nice review. So Christina Chen, one of our PGY3s, gave a great talk today where she really focused on two things, and that was herpes keratitis and herpes zoster. So let's start by talking about the eye complaint, the herpes keratitis. So once the patient has had a primary infection with herpes simplex virus, and in this case, we're mainly talking about HSV-1 since it's, it's the one that predominantly affects the head and face, it sets up in the nerves and it particularly likes the trigeminal ganglion. Yeah, the virus hangs out in the nucleus of the neuron and it can reactivate and spread along the nerve endings anytime. Usually this happens when there's some stress on the patient. With spread along that trigeminal ganglion, you can get reactivation in the cornea. And HSV keratitis is the leading cause of infectious blindness in the world. So clearly, it's an important thing for us to identify and to treat. Patients will present with pain, redness, blurred vision, tearing, discharge, and photophobia. So they've got three of the five eye red flags. Wait, wait, what? What red flags are you talking about here? I don't, I'm not sure I'm familiar with these red flags. Uh, yeah, so we should probably review that pretty quickly here. So this came from a separate talk that we had today. The five red eye red flags are pain, photophobia, vision change, trauma, and contact lenses. Also, you could add a six, which is previous eye surgery. Thank you to Reshma Thampi, who responded to our tweet with this addition. Always, you need to be worried when you see these things. All right, so let's go over those red flags one more time. I think that's a great set of things to think about. Pain, photophobia, vision change, trauma, contact lenses, and then the sixth one, prior eye surgery, which in the past I'd kind of lumped in with trauma, but it is a separate process. We don't want to say that our ophthalmology colleagues are traumatizing people's eyes. They're operating on them. Mm -hmm. Nonetheless, those six things, if you see any of those, if the patient has any of them, you got to really think about some bad things that are going on in that eye. So let's get back to HSV keratitis now. HSV keratitis can be divided into three types, epithelial, stromal, and endothelial. Epithelial disease is usually caused by actively replicating virus and occurs in the outermost layer of the cornea. Stromal disease is usually caused by virally induced immune mechanisms and occurs in the deeper layers. And endothelial disease is usually caused by chronic inflammation. If the infection is in the epithelial layer of the cornea, you're going to see the classic dendritic lesions on a fluorescein exam. Basically, this is going to be that branching pattern with terminal bulbs. Now, don't worry if you can't think about it in your head. We'll have images in the show notes. As the infection enlarges, you'll lose that linear shape, and instead you'll get what's called the geographic pattern. Basically, here the lesions look like continents or islands on a map. If the disease progresses beyond the epithelial level, then you're going to see scarring, ulceration, vascularization of the cornea, and stromal edema on your slit lamp examination. Now, typically, these patients aren't going to present to us. They're usually going to be seen first by an ophthalmologist, but sometimes you're going to have them present to the ED first, and then you're going to set them up with the ophthalmologist. These patients, especially with the ulceration of the cornea, are at a high risk for perforation. Treatment of these lesions is really well discussed in the American Academy of Ophthalmology guidelines, and we'll drop a link to that in the show notes. Epithelial keratitis should be treated with topical antiviral agents and followed closely by optho, because these patients run a significant risk of vision loss from recurrent or progressive infections. 
There are two FDA-approved topical drugs for HSV keratitis, and those are trifluoridine and gancyclovir gel. But topical acyclovir is widely used for this indication in spite of not being FDA-approved. A Cochrane review in 2014 looked at topical antiviral use, oral antiviral use, and combination. They basically concluded that the topical and oral antiviral treatments are equally effective, but the combination offered nothing over one on its own. If the patient gets stromal involvement, they're going to be managed with oral antivirals and topical corticosteroids. The oral antivirals are usually for prophylaxis since the stromal involvement is more reactive than active infection. The truth is that if you see involvement deeper than the epithelium, you're going to want to get an ophthalmologist on board right away to guide management and follow progress. Actually, I think if I remember correctly, the talk before that which was by another one of the PGY3 residents, John DeAlano, specifically said we should never be prescribing topical corticosteroids to patients in the emergency department without an ophthalmologist being involved because you can get into a lot of trouble here. Yeah, he put bright red bold font on the screen that said never prescribe topical corticosteroids ever, ever. Yeah, I think he repeated <laughs> that slide like four times. And like that was like the seventh red flag. Yeah. Like, don't do that. So. so do I, I, I think that's probably a pretty good advice. We probably shouldn't be doing that without getting our ophthalmology colleagues involved. Yeah. So let's move from the eye onto zoster or shingles. And I think this is a relatively easy diagnosis to make once the rash is there. But Jenny, I've been fooled in the past. Uh, you have been fooled in the past and other people have been fooled in the past. I was actually misdiagnosed when I had shingles in the past and it was pretty awful. <laughs> Wait, let it all out. I want to hear the whole thing. Let it. I feel like you've been keeping this cooped up. Now's I, your time. I, Rant I do, away. I do have some pent up you know, frustration from my <laughs> misdiagnosis. I was a first year medical student. I was very stressed out about some upcoming, you know, really important biochem exam or something. I think it was winter time. I'm sure it was winter time. It was awful. And I had a, a very painful red rash and kind of just off from the center of my forehead. And I didn't, I didn't know what it was. I was a first year med student. I didn't, I don't know if I'd even heard of shingles yet at that point. I went to um, a provider at the, just the school's health center and they actually thought that I maybe had impetigo, um, which I could see, you know, I was studying a lot in the library. The library tables are dirty. I was probably touching my face all over. You know, I'm, I'm not a wrestler or a toddler, but I could. But they basically thought you were a dirty, dirty toddler. Yeah, okay. dirty toddler. Yeah. Fair enough. So, so I got put on antibiotics and then I saw my dad a couple of days later. My dad's actually a family practice doc. And he looked at my forehead. He's like, I don't think you have impetigo. I think that you have shingles. Like, and then he explained to me shingles, oh, dermatomes. Oh, yeah. It's like right in this line just off the center of your forehead. And then, of course, that was, you know, 72 plus hours after the onset of my symptoms. So there was really nothing to do. But it was incredibly painful. Just so you know, your patients <laughs> are in pain. <laughs> so it's good to know, actually, because we talk about this being painful, but I've not had it before. And, and now you're telling us it is super painful. All right, let's get back into the core content, because unfortunately, yeah. you're not going to be on the test, Jenny. So herpes zoster is caused by reactivation of the same virus that causes the chickenpox or varicella zoster virus. Basically, you get infected as a kid, you get better, and the virus lays dormant. Of course, now with the varicella immunization, very few kids in the U.S. even get chickenpox, which is kind of a shame because I think it's like a part of growing up. It is one of the things that you have to go through. And as we're talking about it, I can actually remember how bad the itching actually was. Mm -hmm. So the virus lays dormant for decades even, and then it can reactivate in a nerve. And classically, the patient's going to present with a herpetic rash, basically vesicles, along a dermatomal distribution. The rash is going to be accompanied by pain, which, as you said, is going to be intense. 
the tricky part is that the pain can actually precede the rash. And so you may see a patient complaining of chest, back, leg, or wherever pain with no rash. If you can localize that pain to a dermatomal distribution, you may be able to nail down the diagnosis before the rash even comes in. But often the diagnosis won't be made until the rash shows up. And we've discussed in the past that the pain from varicella zoster or shingles can be mistaken for anything like renal colic, ACS-type chest pain, and many, many other things. So one more wrinkle to throw in is a small percentage of people will get pain only. They'll never develop a rash. And this is called, and very creative name, zoster sin herpete, which I think translates to zoster without a rash. That sounds so cool. (laughs) I don't want it anyway. (laughs) No, I don't want it. Um, So once again, a good reason to get the patient undressed is to make sure they don't have a rash that they just don't know about. This reactivation along a dermatome is typically self-limited and unilateral and only seen in a single dermatome. However, after resolution of the rash, people can develop post-herpetic neuralgia, which can be pretty debilitating. Yeah, while the pain can be really bad, the disease itself rarely causes any other significant morbidity except in a certain group of patients where it can spread and involve multiple dermatomes and even lead to systemic infection. Typically, these are immunosuppressed patients, so they have AIDS, they're a transplant patient, or have a hematologic malignancy, or they're on any of the systemic immunosuppressants that we prescribe them. So they're on steroids, they're on rheumatoid arthritis meds, etc. You have to be very cautious in this group of patients, even when they only have a single dermatome involved. Traditionally, treatment for immunocompetent patients with a single dermatome involved and who aren't systemically ill was with oral acyclovir or valcyclovir, as well as some pain control. We were taught that the antivirals decrease the duration of the acute outbreak as well as decreasing the post-herpetic neuralgia. However, more recent data has called this into question. Currently, the best evidence says it's unclear whether there's any benefit to these agents at all. Now, if the patient's immunosuppressed and only has local disease, oral antivirals may be just fine. And basically what you're doing here is not trying simply to shorten the course or reduce that post-herpetic neuralgia, but reduce spread. Now, on the other side, if they've got any signs of systemic infection, so fever, multiple dermatomes, or the patient just doesn't look good, get them started on IV antivirals. One variant that we should address individually is the Ramsey-Hunt syndrome. Varicella affects the facial nerve, and you'll get pain in the ear and face, vesicles in the external ear canal, and an ipsilateral peripheral facial nerve palsy. Although facial nerve involvement is the classic, some patients are going to get involvement of other cranial nerves as well. So this could include eight or nine. And so seeing patients who come in with the rash, but also with dizziness or tinnitus isn't going to be uncommon. Now, for these patients, we definitely want to provide them with the oral antivirals, and we also want to give them oral corticosteroids, as this combination has been shown to increase the return of neurologic function of the facial nerve. So, Jenny, that was a lot of great information. Why don't we wrap it up, as always, with our take-home points? Absolutely. So first, early detection and treatment of HSV keratitis is critical to minimizing permanent visual loss. Always fluorescein patients with eye complaints so that you can look for those dendritic lesions. Second, shingles or zoster will present with pain in a dermatomal distribution followed by a rash. Be suspicious of patients with dermatomal pain and treat with oral acyclovir to reduce the risk of post-herpetic neuralgia. Last, be on the lookout for zoster of the facial nerve presenting with peripheral facial nerve paralysis and lesions in the ear and face. These patients you're going to treat with oral acyclovir and corticosteroids to help improve their neurologic function. Well, that's all for the Corium podcast this week. 
Come on over and check out the site at coreym.net. We've got a ton of great core content emergency medicine. We'll have a core post up on Wednesday on the management of DKA and a journal update this Thursday on delayed intracranial hemorrhage in patients on warfarin with head trauma. Visit us on Facebook and like us if you like the site. Visit our Google Plus page and follow us on Twitter where our handle is at core underscore EM. Thanks and see you all next week.